Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books Network, Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, the author of the Falcon series. You can find out about my work at GabrielleMatthew.com. That's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U.com. Today, we'll be talking with Julia Fine, the author of What Should Be Wild, a literary fantasy novel. She's got an easy name to spell, Julia Fine, just like what it sounds, and an easy Twitter handle, at FineJulie, J-U-L-I. You can also visit her website at www.julia-fine.com. So here's my review about the book. What Should Be Wild is really asking who should be wild? Simultaneously, a plea against the domestication of women, a unique fairy tale, and impressive literary fiction. This novel explores the taming of women through the experiences of the modern Maisie and some of her female ancestors who sought shelter in a magical forest. Maisie Coffey, whose story unfolds in a present, is frightened of her unique gift. Just her touch will take life, but also return it with the next touch. Though she can revive those she kills, her somewhat inept father, Peter, confines her to the grounds, spending their time together in devising meaningless tests, which bring neither of them much insight. In the first few chapters, Maisie is presented like an artifact in a contemporary version of a medieval tower, with a loving jailer. Deep in a forest, there is another version of Maisie, a powerful, supernatural girl with black eyes who is slowly waking while Maisie reaches the brink of womanhood. The persecuted Blakely women who have fled to this forest throughout the centuries gather around a new arrival, both hoping and fearing change. And they should fear, for while Maisie is civilized and compliant, The black-eyed girl in the forest is a creature of appetite, feral, and without compassion. She meets out death. But is she evil? Read closely and ponder. What should be wild is a novel well-suited for writing that thoughtful English paper. Should you find the symbolism and the themes too strenuous, you can always luxuriate in a beautifully writing. Here, for instance, Lucy, one of the Blakely women, find shelter in the woods. The usual sounds of the forest, plaintive owls, scuttling wood mice, the papery screech and flutter of young bats, have been usurped by the lullaby of ancient temperate trees, a sentient quiet, a deep and subtle whisper. This novel even has a touch of horror for those who like to be a little scared. 
Truly a joy to read, Julia Fine's bold debut has me anticipating her future work. Before Julia joins us on the show, let me tell you a bit about her. She is a recent graduate of Columbia College Chicago's MFA program, where she was the recipient of a Foley Fellowship. Her writing has appeared in Literary Hub, Electric Literature, and Fjords Review, and she was the 2015 Writer-in-Residence at the Union League Club of Chicago. Born in Washington, D.C., she now lives in Chicago with her husband and their son. Now let's welcome Julia on the show. Hi, with us today we have Julia Fine on the air, and we're going to start off the show today by asking her to read some from her new novel, Julia, go ahead. I'll be uh, interested to see what you chose. All right. I killed my father three times before the age of eight and caused the demise of over a dozen small animals. We lived at my mother's old family home in the country, far from our nearest human neighbor, but the forest around us was filled with wild beasts. I generally managed to avoid the larger squirrels, rabbits, deer, yet found no way to spare gnats, midges, or houseflies. Even the plants could not resist me. This I learned early on, toddling barefooted outside our house, leaving a comet tail of crackling yellowed grasses where there once had been lush green. Peter, my father, in his odd, dreamy way, simply placed his gloved hand in my chubby one and led me to retrace my steps, watching the color seep back into the landscape. It's just that we don't know its full effects, you see, he would say sorrowfully. In an ideal world, Maisie, my girl, I would encourage you to have your fill of touching. Touch everyone and everything. The skin is a marvelous organ, marvelous indeed. Yet unfortunately, with your condition, I must insist that you refrain from touching. We just don't know enough, you see. To his credit, Peter endeavored to know more. He set me up with homeschooling once I'd turned five and steered me on my own course of studies while continuing with his. I was an early, avid reader. Though I learned little about social interaction, I studied philosophy and history, poetry and science, learned mathematics in the phases of the moon. While I was immersed in my studies, Peter would write letters and journals and books about my case, none of which led us any closer to my own diagnosis, but did earn him some prestige amongst his colleagues. He developed a devoted following of those who were hungry to believe— men and women who'd grown tired of the tedium of peer review and soulless academia, who themselves studied parapsychology and extraterrestrials and uncertain religious phenomena. Peter omitted my name in his recountings, referring to me only as the child, and rerouted our mail so that the curious could not find us. Yet for one who figured so prominently in such a large branch of Peter's studies, I took a distinctly small role in their direction— It was unheard of to voice my own suggestions, anathema to strike out on my own. He published his ongoing case study under the nom de guerre, The Toymaker, a reference to an old fairy tale. I belonged to my father. We were family. All that was mine was also his. Maisie is a very unusual child, (laughs) and we kind of understand her father being protective. Mm -hmm. Although I think as the novel goes on, uh, we get more of insights about their relationship. I wondered how you came up with Maisie's name. Were you thinking of Amazing? I wasn't. Um, I actually had not thought of that until you pointed it out, but it does uh, work nicely. Um, I actually, I sort of used 
I went through a lot of different options for her name. I came up because she's a first person narrator. Um, I could sort of write from her perspective without having named her. And I did for quite a while. Um, and then I sort of tried different things on her and some seemed too exotic. Some seemed too plain. Um, and I settled on Maisie. I think I was looking at definitions of names. Um, and Maisie comes from Margaret, which means pearl. And also it means like child of light. And so I liked that idea of having, she has these powers that are super dark, um, but also light, you know, and she's a child of light. And I also liked the, uh, reference the Henry James, what Maisie knew, which is a sort of girl's coming of age story and passing mm-hmm. from sort of a na- naivety of childhood into sort of an understanding of what the adult world is like. And so once I saw that connection, I uh, decided to go with it. Well, it suits her. Uh, she has the gift of giving life and a gift of taking life. And the story of her engendering is unusual. Maisie gestates in her dead mother, a woman she's presumably killed just by her mere existence. There are other macabre elements of childbearing and raising children, such as the mother who left her daughter alone in the forest at night. But let's get back to Maisie gestating in her dead mother. (laughs) What actual event inspired the beginning of your book? Um, So there was a legal case in the state of Texas at this point, maybe four years ago, where a woman had had um, some sort of brain damage. I think she had a stroke while she was about 15 weeks pregnant. And the prognosis was bad for both the mother and the fetus. Um, But I think perhaps because it was the state of Texas in particular. Uh, At the hospital, they put her on life support and they wanted to keep her on life support. And her family was fighting to get her taken off um, because, again, like it didn't seem like there was any chance of recovery for her or real hope for the fetus. Uh, And I heard about this legal case and I thought, how interesting would it be if something happened or there was some circumstance that allowed for this child to... um, like make it sort of to birth? What would it be like to know that you were born sort of in the womb of a dead mother and to have sort of your mother's story told to you? And a lot of people lose their mothers um, at a young age, but this seemed like a particularly sort of stark beginning. And I wondered what would happen to a character who had this history. Yes, and a very engendering of your essence, you kill the person who gives you life. Mm -hmm. So that... Definitely. Uh, it goes a long way to explaining why she leads such a confined existence. Your book reflects on a lot of uniquely female experiences, and one is giving birth. Uh, can you go into a little more detail about how it speaks to that? Sure. Um, I So I had my first child actually once I was already, I'd already sold the book um, and was in the editing process. I sold the book while I was pregnant. So the majority of the book I wrote without having had any of these experiences myself. Um, And then the publication got delayed slightly, which I think ended up being sort of a blessing in disguise because I was able to go back and see all these moments where I'd written about childbirth and motherhood without having had the experience myself. And I suddenly saw... Um, some things that I'd written, which were just ridiculous, um, and other things, other (laughs) moments where I thought like, okay, this is somewhere to really dig in. Um, and I'm very interested. It's been, I think as a woman who 
sort of wants to have any sort of career has ambition for herself beyond motherhood, this idea that we're fed that you can't both sort of be a mother, be a parent and sort of um, progress or sort of continue your own ambitions is so ridiculous, Mm -hmm. so silly. And I wanted to write about sort of what it means to have your past experiences feed your child and have like your history, um, your family history sort of create who you are as a person. So for Maisie, all the experiences of the women in her family sort of feed who she becomes before she's even born. Um, And I thought of it in a way of, because Maisie spends so much time in the forest, the book is so focused on the forest, how, you know, in the woods, um, a tree will die and it gives life to all these new trees. And I loved that idea of thinking about sort of parenthood, thinking about ancestry as sort of you're being fed on literally um, like the meat of your ancestors, I guess. And I took it into a very literal place, um, but it's all a metaphor. Um, and so, yeah, it's I think, sorry. The collective unconscious yeah. of our ancestry and how that gets passed on. Mm-hmm. And it is encoded in our DNA too now. I mean, we know that portions of DNA turn on and off depending on the experiences mm-hmm. of our parents. Yeah. Um, so I thought, yeah, so I, I looked at motherhood on a much larger scale like that. Um, and then I do have characters in the novel who are one who's um, sort of eternally pregnant, which isn't a fate mm-hmm. I'd really wish on anyone. Although I think she's stuck in her second trimester, which is better than the alternative, I guess. Um, and then sort of characters who want to have children and can't be mothers and are unable to fulfill sort of the roles that society has set out for them. Um, and then, of course, Maisie's mother, who in essence sacrifices herself for her child. And then Maisie has to live with sort of what that means for the rest of her life. That's true. That's now, that's the original sacrifice. Mm -hmm. A lot of mothers say, I've sacrificed everything for you. But with Maisie's mother, you could actually say that. Yeah. I, um, the other thing that I hope people take out of this book, uh, so much of it, I tried to write, um, sort of first from the extreme sort of of one side and then the extreme of the other. So an example being, you know, Maisie can give life and also give death. Um, and sort of there's a side of her that's sort of crazy id and then a side of her that's very sort of super ego constrained, confined, repressed. Um, and hopefully what readers will take away when they reach the end of the book is that sort of it's important just as a human being to find the center and to um, reconcile both parts of yourself. So I'd like to think with motherhood too, you know, it's not just self-sacrifice and it's also not just, you know, abandoning your children and going after only what you want. You know, we can be both people are multifaceted. You don't have to fit into a role that someone has created for you. Mm -hmm. Integration. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a bit about Maisie's mother, but uh, let's talk about Peter, Maisie's father. Do you find him a sympathetic figure? Tell us a bit th- about him. I think to be a writer you and to sort of create characters that feel like full people, you have to have some empathy for those characters. Um, I think if I were Maisie or sort of someone looking in, not the author, I'd be incredibly frustrated with him. He doesn't, um, he himself is not especially empathetic in the mm. beginning when we first meet him. Um, and he's very sort of rule-oriented, very fact-based. I sort of looked at him as like 
the side of sort of the more um, sort of this mazy ultimately sort of is the heart. He's like the head and he looks at things in a very mm-hmm. sort of empirical method, scientific kind of way, which is funny because the work he's doing, um, as, as I mentioned in the passage that I read from, like the work he's doing is sort of not looked at as real work by the scientific community. And for him, it's very important that he follow all these rules sort of because he's not in that club. Um, and I think he sort of represents a lot of different men. Like he doesn't have negative intentions for Maisie. He thinks he's doing what's in her best interest. Um, but ultimately by sort of imposing himself on her, he's hurting her. He's making it more difficult for her to grow up, um, to sort of figure herself out. So I do, I have, I have a lot of sympathy for him because I have been in his head for such a long time, having written him. Mm -hmm. Um, but he also sort of is not necessarily intended to be the most sympathetic of characters. Well, Peter's attempt to protect his daughter backfires, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think sort of in the same way that I think a lot of parents trying to protect their children end up going too far. Um, It's sort of like the extreme example of when you tell your kid, you know, you can't stay out late, you can't, you know, have anything to drink, you can't do this or that. And then they say, get to college or something and go crazy. Um, is it sort of the, like, this is another example of that, of when you keep someone so locked up and you don't really allow them to get in touch with themselves, to get in touch with their emotions and their desires and recognize their needs as um, healthy. It's very easy, I think, when given the opportunity for that person to just sort of go totally in the other direction um, because they haven't really they don't have that foundation of sort of self-knowledge. And knowledge of others. Maisie oh, yeah, is sure. somewhat naive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he definitely, he does her a huge disservice um, in terms of obviously not letting her socialize, but also even if she wasn't meeting people, not sitting down with her and sort of telling her about people and about people's mm-hmm. motivations. And he sort of, he censors what she reads and what she does and who she sees. And so in a way it's again, like a metaphor for sort of the way the world has treated women throughout the centuries. Um, But it's also just a story about sort of a father trying to protect his child in the best way he knows how and having that be ultimately a really unfortunate decision. Right. So you were talking about the way society has treated women throughout the centuries, and that brings us to Maisie's ancestors, the Blakely women. Many of them have ended up in this magical wood because they've been fleeing from society's harsh judgments. There in that wood, they're freed from wanton judgment. Yet, as one character, Catherine, says, there is nothing to do. Nowhere to go, nothing to take from. Now it reminded me of that talking head song, Heaven is a Place Where Nothing Ever Happens. (laughs) Can you discuss the concept of a refuge as presented in the wood in your novel? Uh, Yeah, I I love that comparison. That's a good one. Um, I thought of, I mean, everyone I'm sure is like familiar with like the Adam and Eve story and this idea of Eden as this perfect place that we're all trying to get back to. And I think it's so interesting. Um, And obviously, you know, since I think for a long time, but especially recently, and especially women writers have sort of turned this idea on its head of like, okay, did Eve really, you know, cause the downfall or did she open up this new world of possibilities? Um, 
and this idea of sort of Eden and a refuge as like a beautiful place, um, a, a safe, relatively safe place, you know, physically safe, but it's static. Um, and you're not learning, you're not growing. It's ultimately sort of what is so good about it is also what's bad about it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it did. And so these women who come from, um, each of them is sort of fleeing from a society that doesn't let her be who she wants to be, who she naturally is, sort of there's no place left for her in this world that um, society has created. And so she finds what at first is sort of this beautiful garden, this Eden, um, but very quickly devolves into a kind of prison. Um, and I actually, uh, you can tell from the name Blakely and uh, Urizen, uh, the name of Maisie's ancestral home are both names that I took from William Blake and his work. And he writes a lot about um, sort of your stereotypical peaceful Eden turning into something sort of darker with under female influence and sort of like female sexuality um, and vines growing everywhere and sort of men getting caught up. And so I was also really interested in that, which again is something that is just like throughout history. You look at like, um, if you ever read like the fairy queen, um, there's a part where like the knight goes into this, I guess like almost um, like a brothel made out of vines with this like temptress. And so that's like a figure who repeats throughout. And so I liked the idea that maybe the forest was going to be that figure of um, you know, taking feeding off of these women and all of the things that society didn't want and like sort of storing it for them in the same way that Maisie stores the part of herself that Peter represses. Um, so I was definitely looking to sort of some pretty old sources for inspiration here. Yeah, I can see William Blake's paintings and drawings going mm-hmm. along with you. Yeah, well. I uh, I have like a big collection of his illuminated work, and it's really just fascinating. I mean, it's so difficult. Mm-hmm. It's very dense. It's really hard to understand um, as much as you can understand what any writer or author is going for. It's like he's very, very cryptic. Um, and so it was kind of nice to take to look at it and say, like, here's what I'm taking out of this, and I'm going to let that be my inspiration as opposed to trying to completely understand what his goal was. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about the Blakely women, uh, as we mentioned, they've been persecuted or cast out, and some of them are women we can naturally sympathize with, such as Imogen, whose kind husband changes her pregnancy results in him becoming possessive of her body. He imagines himself devouring her from the inside out. Then there are other women as Catherine, who aren't as likable. <laughs> Catherine has great carnal appetites, and uh, her own brother tries to resist her, her married brother. But she finally overcomes his resistance. And uh, what was your intention there? Did you just want to have a fully realized spectrum of behavior by making some of the women less sympathetic? Yeah, I um, I definitely think it's important not to sort of idolize um, women who've been like subjugated in the past, and you can't you don't look at everyone and say like, oh, she's living in a man's world, and so therefore these behaviors are acceptable. And I'm definitely not trying to sort of excuse what Catherine does. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, now maybe she'd go to like a self-help group and like have group therapy or something and it would help her with, you know, uh, her own 
appetites, but back then there really was nothing. And so I really, I guess I exaggerated definitely. I'm sure there were women who, you know, they have like one lover or two lovers or female lovers or whatever it is that society looks down on. And I definitely took her to the extreme. Um, And part of that was because with each of the Blakely women, I was trying to channel um, a sort of trope that you might usually see in fairy tales. I actually read a really fabulous book um, by Marina Warner called From the Beast to the Blonde. And it's about um, women women's roles in fairy tales. And she looks at both women who've told fairy tales and women who have been sort of in fairy tale stories throughout history. Uh, and it's all from a feminist perspective. And so she pointed out sort of some of these tropes, like um, the women, the woman who's been silenced or the woman who's sort of too ugly for the world or the woman who is sort of like a siren and has this appetite. And you can mm-hmm. see them in like our fairy tales today. You know, you look at, again, like sort of sirens in Greek mythology or you look at um, right. like the little mermaid's voice is taken away. And so she looks at all of those and I thought it would be so interesting to combine those fairy tale stories with actual experiences and the way that sort of women... Um, actually lived over the centuries. And so I did a decent amount of historical research to place each of these tropes sort of in a historical setting where they would make sense um, and just sort of play with them from there. And so part of sort of what makes them like the reason that they're so different, or I don't know how different they actually are, but the reason that they've got different wants, different desires, different uh, levels, I guess, of likability is because I was trying to situate them in their time and like play with these tropes. And I was really interested in Elise. Alice, uh, yeah. She, yeah, Alice. She lives with the Blakely women from various time periods, but I don't think she has a last name. Her disappearance is not even memorialized. Seems like she was the original one. She lived from fifth, uh, from 591 to 605, and she's described as the last of her kind and she has honed teeth, and her eyes are dark, almost lacking pupils. Uh, who who is she? What is she yeah. based on? Um, so that whole her whole story is really based on uh, like the Roman invasion of Britain, way way back, um, like pre pre Hadrian's Wall. I don't know. I'm I shouldn't even mention mm-hmm. it because I'm not looking at dates or anything right now. Um, but really based on sort of like the Boudicca story and like the sort of tribes that lived in England before the Romans came in. And so like the people that her people are fighting um, are very much based on the Romans. And I was interested too in the idea of sort of the land and the communion that people used to have with the land that sort of, um, I mean, I don't want to blame the Romans, but I think starting, starting probably pre-Roman, but definitely sort of with the Roman invasion people's connection to the land, I think, was broken and some of these traditions were um, lost. And so I did a decent amount of research into some of like the tribes that lived um, before the Roman invasion and what happened with them. But she's, of course, like my own invention. I took a lot of liberties, I think, with the actual history. Um, But she does have that connection to the land that allows her sort of to call on the forest and get the ball rolling for these women. I've researched that time period just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious about the honed teeth. Oh, that's, that your, that's your own invention. That's my own. That's totally my own okay. invention. <laughs> I think um, 
I wanted her to feel separate and otherworldly. And the other women, again, are like very, you can place them historically. Um, there are things about both their backstories and the way that they behave that feel very human. And I think partially because it's so difficult to find, like it's really impossible other than physical objects to find primary source research. Exactly. Um, and yeah. so I sort of was like, okay, I'm just going to run with that and make her feel really foreign, make her feel sort of of the forest, um, give her sort of human emotions and motivations, but also sort of something of her that feels really mysterious and that does feed Maisie and the Black Eyed Girl. Mm-hmm. She is in some respects like the Black Eyed Girl, I think. So we could go into a whole other thing about the Black Eyed Girl, <laughs> but I think people, you'll just have to read the book, What Should Be Wild, to find out more about the Black Eyed Girl. I'm going to turn to Julia's profession. It's obvious from talking with you, Julia, that you've looked at a lot of literary sources, and actually you do teach writing yourself. It's obvious you take the telling of the tale as well as the themes seriously. And as an example of the craftsmanship that was put into the writing, I'd like to read the following short description. The usual sounds of the forest, plaintive owls, scuttling wood mice, the papery screech and flutter of young bats have been usurped by the lullaby of ancient temperate trees, a sentient quiet, a deep and subtle whisper. So that's quite a sentence. And I'm wondering, at what point in the writing and revising process do you take the time to create these thoughtful and poetic descriptions? Do you sit down and do the plot first and then go back and elaborate? Or how does it oh, work? Oh, goodness. Um, unfortunately, it's the other way around. I think I would work a lot more efficiently if I did the plot first. Oh, okay. um, but I'm definitely a sort of like write it and see where it goes kind of writer. Um, I definitely envy people who can put together an outline and stick to it. I'm really bad at that. Um, I have learned though that I can't sit and fiddle with a sentence forever because there's a high chance that that sentence will just get cut entirely. Um, you know, for mm -hmm. my first, in my early writing life, I would just sort of re rewrite the same few paragraphs. And then I realized like, oh, well, this scene is just going to totally disappear. So I probably should have, you know, a fuller oh. draft before I am uh, sitting here with it. But I do think for the most part, the sentences and the lines that I'm the most proud of in this book sort of come almost fully formed. Um, the more time I have to put into it and the more I have to sort of fiddle and rework it, I think the more obvious that is for me and for readers. So something like that, I think maybe a word or two changed, but when I initially wrote it, it came out as is. Um, so I don't know if it's sort of like channeling the muse or having read the right thing right before I sit down to write or being in the right frame of mind and having really tapped into something. Um, but I definitely, like my revision is often more character and plot based than it is sentence level um, until we get to sort of that last pass where I really have to look at sort of grammar and things like that. It might be that there are two kinds of writers because I know that when I write, I'm really concentrated on like, what's going to happen next? Okay, where are they going? What's he going to do? Like I'm watching a film. And then when I go back, 
I actually feel like I've just sped through the descriptions and it's a little superficial. And that's when I think, how can I think of a nice adjective for this? <laughs> or, or this is such an overused verb. How about using a verb with a little more punch to it? I definitely envy that. I wish that I could be more like that rather than going on these tangents, which I mean, I am also a very... I've cut so much. There are probably like hundreds of pages of what should be wild that just never uh-huh. made it because I was just sort of indulging my own descriptions. Um, and I'm sure people read this now and are like, okay, get to the point. Um, but that's just not the type of writer I am. Well, Julia, you should make short tweets of the cutouts oh, once in a while idea. because the writing is so nice. Oh, I thank you. <laughs> Maybe I will. That's a very good idea. Yeah, I had whole characters and characters who stayed, but like Matthew Harriman's family, I had just like all of these things about them and description of them mm-hmm. and conversations that ultimately um, my agent and editor were like, this is nice, but it's not part of this book, you know? So, <laughs> Well, your beautiful descriptions of the sensate magical wood you said were inspired partially by your reading of The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Volib and what did you learn from that book and how did you oh, apply gosh. the knowledge? Oh, that book is so wonderful. It really, I highly recommend it to anybody who is interested in nature, likes being in nature. I can go for like walks now and I just look at trees so differently. Um, so he is a, for, a German forester who has years and years of experience and wrote this book about sort of the scientific uh, from a scientific perspective, he's writing about the ways trees communicate with one another and the way they like think basically and feel. Um, excuse me, I'm about to cough. <coughs> I apologize. Um, the, so he writes about the way trees like warn each other about predators. Um, so apparently if sort of there's a bug invasion, say, um, and there are predators eating the leaves of trees. They can warn another group of trees with just like releasing a scent. You know, there's another group of trees a mile away that will be able to put out something into their leaves that prevents these bugs that ate from group one. Um, or about sort of the like root connections and the way that trees um, can communicate and share resources within their roots. So if one tree isn't getting enough sunlight or getting enough water, a nearby tree can sort of feed that tree. Um, So they really have like communities and there's hierarchies where the older trees sort of have um, first dibs at various resources that they'll then sort of meet up to the younger ones or sort of the younger tree has to like earn its place (laughs) in a particular forest. Um, And it's super fascinating. And it sounds so magical too. It sounds like it can't be true that it's like not scientific, but then you look at it and it's like, no, he's basing this on years of observation and research. And like, in a way it is magic, but it's also science, which worked perfectly for what should be wild, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I might have to buy that book myself. It's so, it's so interesting. And I, it's funny because um, while I was reading it, I would go walking at one point, my husband and I um, like went on a hike and I just had to pause him every five seconds to say like, oh, look how this tree is doing that. This is why. Or like, look at the you know difference between this one over here. And I think he was he was into it. But I think at a certain point, he's like, okay, let's just like keep walking. <laughs> and the other thing I'd like to mention, since he's a German forester, if you translate his name, literally, it means good life or a comfortable life. Oh, so. I didn't know that. Yeah, we speak German over here in Switzerland. 
So moving on as a writing teacher, what's the most important advice that you would give your students? Um, I think in general, my like two sort of most well-received lessons are usually the sort of very basic grammar, um, which I think a lot of students either don't get these days in high schools. Um, I teach at a college mm-hmm. level or just sort of forget. And so those are always helpful just sort of to be able to write clearly and that, you know, writing clearly helps you communicate what you mean, which is funny because I am obviously not the clearest of writers, uh, <laughs> um, but also to sort of lean into what you're scared of and to find sort of that sore spot and that place where you're sort of scared to see what's going to come out of you or you're scared of what the topic is or the emotion that you're conjuring. Um, and I think the mm-hmm. best writing sort of comes from leaning into that fear. So like an example for this book is um, like a lot of people, um, like mortality is terrifying for me. And so I thought like, okay, what if I try to approach it from this perspective of like looking at human life, the way you would look at sort of natural life and nature um, in an effort to sort of grapple with my own fears. Um, And I think my other, other work that I've done that I'm really proud of, a lot of it comes from sort of finding that fear and really just like putting my finger on the sore spot. And so I think if my students do that, no matter what the sort of technical level of the work is, the emotion is there and you can always work on the technical stuff. Um, but the emotional stuff, like if you're not grabbing it right away, it probably isn't going to show up. So a good way to get yourself started is to find what you're scared of. That's really good advice because if the reader doesn't have that emotional connection, if they don't feel like it matters to the writer, they're going to stop reading. Exactly. Even if the grammar is perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't matter like how pretty it is. The other thing too, which um, again, like I teach college freshmen writing. And so a lot of what they are doing is like, so the type of writing that's expected of them is suddenly very different from what was expected in high school. Um, Mm -hmm. But knowing, you know, like, even if this is just an assignment that like you have to do, if you're not enthusiastic and passionate about it, I'm not going to be enthusiastic and passionate about reading it, you know? Um, And so being able to find like the connections to your own life and find something that is going to make other people be interested in reading and like interested in hearing what you have to say. Right. Well, you mentioned your other works, uh, finding that sore spot in your work. Uh, What are you working on now? Um, I am working on my second novel. I'm in pretty early stages. Um, It is a postpartum ghost story. So it's a woman who has recently given birth sort of in those first leery few weeks uh, postpartum. And it also deals with Margaret Wise Brown, who's the author of Goodnight Moon, the popular children's book, um, and sort of her life and her demons. And so it's, again, I think it's going to be sort of a twisty, sort of multi-layered story um, about women's bodies and sort of mm-hmm. women's roles. Um, so yeah, we'll see how long it takes me and where it goes. Again, I'm sort of a like by the seat of my pants typewriter. So like it could totally look different in six months, but right now that's what it looks like. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today. We've been talking with Julia Fine about her debut novel, What Should Be Wild. 
Again, you can find out more about Julia on her website, www.julia-fine.com, or you could follow her on Twitter at FindJulie, J-U-L-I. I'm the author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series, which begins with The Falcon Flies Alone. I also blog about travel and books at my website, www.gabriellematthew.com. You can follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. And that's at Gabrielle Author. My first name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. And I'm looking forward to connecting with you next month when I interview writer Kat Rambo from Seattle.